This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, vacation is over, and it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 562 of the Two It and Nerd comic book podcast. First of all, I would like to thank everybody that did not break into my house while I was gone, even though Joe Patrick did put out that <laughs> invitation, proving that he, once again, he's a very respectful friend. But we'll talk about Joe Patrick in a minute, because my name is Matt Baum. I gave them your address and everything. That was very sweet of you. I am the Internet's Joe Patrick. As mentioned previously, this week we've got spotlight reviews on Amy Reader's new Amethyst title, and Wolvie returns with his very own new series. Then it's time for comics and cocktails while we review eight more of this and last Wednesday's new comics in the ludicrous speed round. Later, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we'll be naming our first springtime must-read comic picks for the next week. And finally, there has been a lot of Batsuit discussion recently. So we focus on fashion for a Batsuit-centric Ask a Nerd. But now it's time to do what we do best here. And what it is, it's not as pretty as you think, but it's also not that bad. We're going to discuss this week's Nerd News. Nerd News. Frequent collaborators Joe Kelly and Chris Bacalo are reuniting for a new Spider-Man ongoing anticipated to launch this June. This was announced as part of Marvel's presentation at uh, this past weekend's Comics Pro annual meeting in Portland. The book is called Nonstop Spider-Man. Um, before we get into anything, what do you th- how does the title make you feel? Uh, let's, t- let's talk about that title. I hate it. Yeah, I hate it, right? Nonstop Spider-Man? It's That's the stupid. best you could come up with? Yeah, it's really I'm not dumb. saying we always have to go back to the well of sensational, amazing, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. I'm not saying we have to do that, but nonstop Spider-Man? Yeah, because you know what? I've always, Everyone's always referring to him as, there goes Spidey, he's nonstop. That's right, 24 hours a day. <laughs> That's our Spidey. He's like Jack in the Box, man. He's always working. It sounded like Kelly and Bacalo had a really good time announcing this one and made a bunch of jokes about sign your waivers and gather your safety gear of choice before issue one comes out. You know, I mean, obviously they're excited. We like Joe Kelly. We like Chris Bacalo a lot. They've worked together a million times and it was always great. They did some of it with Spider-Man. They first worked together in 98 with Uncanny X-Men. Gorgeous. The duo worked together on their own creator-owned series, Steampunk, for DC Wildstorm. I still can't tell you what it's about. That was part of the uh, late-lamented cliffhanger imprint. Yes. (laughs) It was beautiful, Uh, although I'm not sure there was a plot. Then they each had individual runs on Spider-Man. They worked together in 2008 and 2009 during Amazing Spider-Man's Brand New Day area. They are old buddies. They work very well together. What does this book need to be, though? Because just another Spider-Man book. We have so many Spidey books right now. And there's no reason why you couldn't say, hey, would this team like to take care, take over something like, I don't know, Amazing Spider-Man? I mean, because Nick only, Spencer's not knocking it out of the park for anybody. There's only one ongoing Spidey title, right? No there's way. A, there's always a ton of side stuff, but I think... Well, there's Amazing, and there's Friendly Neighborhood, and then there's... Oh, no, uh, friendly, neighbor, friendly Neighborhood is over. Oh, is it So over? I think okay. right now, Amazing Spider-Man is the only ongoing Spider-Man main title. Well, um, let me ask you this. Would you rather this these two take over Amazing Spider-Man, or are you still having fun with Nick Spencer's? I would honestly rather these guys take over Amazing Spider-Man, but... Why not? I, Why not? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really like this team. I love Joe Kelly, and... I don't think he gets enough work, um, but I don't know, man. I, the title- well, Joe Kelly doesn't need Marvel work either. Joe Kelly has money. He put together that Man of Action Studios with some of his buddies, and they made plenty of Oh, yeah, of they cash. did, like, Ben 10 and a bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So um, for Marvel to get him back to do a Spider-Man job, I don't understand why you don't say, boys, just take over Amazing Spider-Man for a while and bl- and blow it out of the park. Well, you know? and, I mean, like, and come he, on. Had a, he had a long run on that uh, Spider-Man Deadpool team-up comic that ran for a long time. So it's not like he ever really went away completely. I just no, like yeah, I I agree. Give them the reins. Give them the reins. Like Nick Spencer's uh, book is fine. 
It's fine. It's just fine. It's yeah. aggressively fine. <laughs> but you also can't tell me there's something going on in Amazing Spider-Man that we just had to get a second Spider-Man book to deal with because we didn't want to take away from that major Nick Spencer storyline. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Like, they had that they had that Craven the Hunter story that went on way too long, and then that 2099 uh, crossover thing was kind of a bust. I, I haven't finished any of them, I, honestly. I, 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 like, I, I keep trying, yeah, like, and I just keep falling off. Same here, man. I, I let them build up, and then I'll read a few, and I'm like, this is okay. And I want to love it because I love the artist so much. Yeah, Ryan Otley. I love Ryan Otley, but, but yeah. Man, I, it's Spencer's... Spider-Man is just not doing it for me. This this seems like a missed opportunity. And if it's going to be a limited series, then just call it a limited series because you know it's limited. Yeah. I really liked Tom Taylor's Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man, but I understand why that wasn't the flagship book. You know, that was a much sure. more low-key kind of uh, story. But this, though, there's no reason that these guys could not have a high-profile run on, right. on the main spider These are book. two massive names, and not only in Spider-Man history, but it just in Marvel history. So... Why they don't get the keys to Amazing, I don't know. We'll see. Instead, we get it the poorly named Nonstop Spider-Man. It is a dumb debuting, title. <laughs> debuting this June at a local comic shop. From the crossover to crossover desk, IDW and DC are teaming in October for a crossover of Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez's Lock and Key and Neil Gaiman's Sandman universe in the appropriately titled Lock and Key. Helen Gone, a Sandman Universe crossover event. <laughs> wow. We got to get both in there. Equal spotlight. It's like when Vin Diesel fights with, you know, uh, The Rock. Like, no one's allowed to beat anybody up. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? This is announced via Twitter by IDW. Saturday morning, Lock and Key creators Hill and Rodriguez will helm the event. We don't know much more than that. We don't even know if it's a one-shot or a mini or what. All we know is it's happening. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's that weird? Is it that far out of the realm of, like, at least this one seems to make sense to me. Yeah. I'm you have a, a story about a house with magic keys that yeah. open doors and stuff. I don't see why one of them couldn't go to the Sandman universe. Absolutely. Like, I saw, all I saw, all I needed to get pumped about this was the headline. I saw the headline. I was like, yes, give it to me. More lock and key for one thing. Yeah. Uh, is always welcome. I just finished a complete Lock and key reread from start to finish because I was uh, inspired by the TV show. I was not inspired by the TV show. Uh, well, as much as I enjoyed the TV show in the moment, rereading Lock and Key the comic, I was like, oh man, they could have done so much, so better. much better. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. Like, I reread it right before the show because I remember they were like, oh, next month, that's coming. It's been so long. I should I should check that out. Yeah. Uh, and the magic of the book, God, it's so wonderful. Yeah. And it, I honestly think it lends itself to that same weirdness of the Sandman universe yeah, really like, well. There's a key. And I, al I also don't think that you could argue that Joe Hill probably got a lot of these ideas from guys like Neil Gaiman and his Sandman. Yeah, universe. you can see how it might be inspired by, you know, Absolutely. Early, no early run Vertigo stuff. Um, like, there's a key that opens a portal into the moon uh, into a little Nemo and Slumberland style right? like afterlife. There could be a key that opens the door to the dreaming. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and, and I think this is a great team to do it and I think Neil Gaiman probably has a lot of respect for Joe Hill. So uh, this could be a lot of fun is what I was trying to say. Yeah, and uh, Gabriel Rodriguez's art, you know, in the right light has a, has a nice like P. Craig Russell vibe. Definitely. And P. Craig Russell has done a lot of Sandman work, uh, and I think it's a great fit. I think it's a great pair of creators to 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 do this. Uh, is DC still trying to convince us that Sandman is a thing we should be concerned about? Yes. Did they cancel Vertigo? The only reason anybody cared? Yes. Right. <laughs> but I'm excited for this, and I I want to know more about it. I hope it's more than just like a one shot. I, I'd like a nice meaty miniseries or something at least a four issue series or even nice. like a graphic novel would be great <laughs> sure sure yeah. from the i did not see this coming desk longtime dc co-publisher dan didio is no longer with the company first reported by comic book in their original story they said that didio was quote removed from his position but they later removed that portion of the article 
How, they removed the removed portion. They removed so the know. removed, yeah. <laughs> However, Bleeding Cool reported that he was indeed fired in part for fostering a poor work environment. It does sound more and more like that was the case, too. Yeah. Uh, the change comes, it seems, suddenly. According to participating retailers, DiDio was posting to one of their Facebook forums on behalf of DC the morning he was fired. And freelance creators also stated that they had been working with him on DC projects that same day. Yeah, he was supposed to be at C2E2 the following week. There's no way yeah. he knew this was coming. And news and just came out. And this was not a matter of like, well, if this comes down, I'm just going to quit. Because there was no news or anything either. Right. I th he was just fired. Yeah, and news came today that the Meet the Publishers panel was obviously canceled. Uh, Go figure. At C2E2. Can you imagine poor Jim Lee sitting on stage all by himself like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> with the S and publishers crossed off yeah. with a big red mark, you know, uh, with, a, with a sign on the stage that says no question. So, no who wants to talk about G5. No Anybody? questions about Dan, please. No questions about Dan. Uh, yeah, it, it's very sudden. There was no like, thank you for your years of service, Dan DiDio. Like, thank you message that they get when nothing, when somebody retires or dies. It yeah, was just nothing gone. He's gone. And DC hasn't said shit yet. Uh, this is the end of an 18-year run at the publisher for DiDio. He joined in January 2002. He was originally the vice president of editorial. He was co-writing Superboy with Jimmy Palmiotti. It was terrible. It was terrible. It was That was when Superboy became uh, the superintendent of a tenement building in Suicide Slum in Metropolis or something like that. It was awful. Uh, in 2004, he was promoted to VP executive editor, and then he took over the publisher title in 2010 following the retirement of Paul Levitz. I mean, the larger story here is for well over the last 15 years here, Dan DiDio has been a major creative force, like him or hate him, at DC Comics, and now he's suddenly gone, yeah. and they have no one to fill his shoes yet. Now, let me ask you this. Was it time? Well... I have complicated feelings about it. Uh, and I'm not talking about the timing or the way it was carried out. Let's take all of that yeah, out Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I gotcha. Um, was it time? I think that typically people in that role don't usually hold that position for that long. No, they don't. Like even Joe Casada, when he was editor-in-chief at Marvel, he got promoted out of the role. Right. You I know, mean, and there's, there was a lot, there was people speculating and saying that this whole 5G thing that they've set up that takes... Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman right out of the their roles, putting other characters in the roles and whatnot, just in time for a Batman movie, doesn't seem to make sense. Scott Snyder had some things to say about not wanting Dark Knight's metal being part of 5G. I mean, there's all manner of speculation. There's a lot of speculation, and that's all we have right now. We, right. What we have are... A lot of there's a, a huge amount of outpouring from creators that worked with him, uh, like uh, oh yeah, Jeff Lemire and Gail Simone. People love the guy, like and beloved, absolutely loved yeah. him. Um, but also, there's also a lot of grumbling about some of his less publicized bad behavior, like he he was very temperamental. Uh, he let Eddie Berganza, who was a sexual predator, stay on in charge of oh yeah uh, the Justice League titles for way too long. Uh, he was, he was constantly shitting on beloved characters. Oh, there's a lot of other stuff I read where he's like told an artist that he, uh, he had to make a character's boobs bigger if they wanted the book to sell, like a lot of like shitty stuff, but he also was a huge passionate fan of comics, specifically DC comics. And a lot of the stuff that we loved from the last 18 years he had and a direct a lot of the hand stuff in. we hated as well. well like, like <laughs> it's it's a mixed bag for sure, but you can say that about any publisher. It's just that he was That's such true. a he was such a polarizing figure. Do you think that it was easy DC's for guys like us who don't really know much sure to look at him Do and go it's his fault? From what we know not and, and take away the way it was done. Do you think DC is better off or worse off for this? Uh you know, I hope it's better. I mean, I, I, I obviously think, hope for the best. I honestly think DC is better off for this. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, and I'm not saying I like the way that he was fired. I'm not going to jump up and down on the corpse of his career. But I will say he is an old guy, 
and he has a lot of old ideas, and those old ideas can only be played out so many times, and that means right. how many times we're going to have a crisis after crisis yep, after crisis yep. after crisis. We went, you know, we I mean, went like, back to the well a lot with, with We're with stuck. That. DC is stuck. How many relaunches have we had in the last five years? It's true. It's true. I mean, since since the New 52 in 2011, so that was, and how many Jesus, times that was nine years ago. Doing it. I mean, I, I again, I don't like the way this was handled, but I think this is for the best. I, really I mean, do. people get fired, and there's a reason he got fired. It's just uh, business. There's a reason he got fired. Maybe it would have been better if DC had gotten out in front of it instead of letting people speculate all weekend. Um, but I mean, I, I will say you give a guy like Dan DiDio a chance to walk away. I think you come to him and you say, Yeah, look. Thank you for everything. Yeah. We've decided we're going a different way. We would like you to get out ahead of it, be out of respect, and say that you've chosen to go or whatever. And the fact that they didn't do that is a little odd. So maybe there was something that came to a head really fast. I yeah, don't know. like maybe he fucked up real bad. <laughs> I like, we don't know. We don't know. We might never know. But maybe they're doing us a favor by not telling us. You know, I mean, we don't know. It's just that where I'm at right now is that. For every memory I have where I thought, oh, man, Dan DiDio, he's doing a bad job. He needs to go or something I read online or whatever. I see a post from uh, Liam Sharp who said things got bad for me uh, online. I was maybe uh, uh, not conducting myself the proper way online. Dan DiDio took the blame. He stood in front of me and he said, don't worry about it. That's what I'm here for. Uh, he stood up for his creators much of the time. Uh, uh, definitely. Without a doubt. I just think it's time for some new, fresh blood with new ideas for this company rather than another universal reality smashing together story that resets everything. Yeah. And 5G, quite honestly, sounds like another one of those. Yeah. And 5G, from all accounts, 5G is still is still happening. Uh, because the the higher ups at AT and T and 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 Warner Brothers signed off on it, so and it's not like it was all on to Dio, um, and creators have been working on these books for months, right? So now I don't believe for a second that if five G fails, AT and T is like ah, shutter them, screw it, bye DC. Yeah, uh, so, so we're selling it to Marvel Ethan, the, yeah. for dollars for pennies on the dollar. Ethan, Ethan, yours. Ethan Van Skyver is taking to YouTube and Twitter like proclaiming a, a DC apocalypse. So it's like, if 5G's a failure, DC will shut down for good. Yeah. It's like, no, come on. <laughs> uh, exactly. It's too valuable. In fact, I heard they're just going to give up their copyrights, too. They're like, right. what's the point? It's too valuable. What's a stupid point? <laughs> it's too valuable to the parent companies just as an IP farm. Yeah. It's ridiculous to yeah. even think that. So but, let's shut that down right yeah. now. Yeah. But, I mean. At the end of the day, Dan yeah. Dio was genuinely beloved by the characters you work with he did take a lot of chances and a lot of the stuff that we loved directly came from him working with said creators with that said there is a lot of stuff that we railed about and this and i'm talking about the larger universe directions right character directions right that he just kept returning to again and again and again and sooner or later that type of thinking just has to be cut off at the head, and we need some new, fresh blood to figure it out. He I'm not was, saying, let's redo everything and make it all new and extreme for 2020, bro, or whatever, right. but he it's was, time for some new blood. He was obsessed with the idea that your Barry Allens and your Hal Jordans, they were the only viable versions of those characters, the icons. Right. And right. because of that attitude, it led to a lot of bad stuff for a lot of fans, and he yep. was not beloved by everybody. That's why I'm voting for Mark Wade as co-publisher, DC Comics Chief, 2020. Chief creative officer slash, oh, no, wait. Co-publisher. Uh, you know what? Mark Wade would be great, but he just became editor-in-chief of Humanoids. <laughs> so He can walk away from that anytime he wants. <laughs> are you kidding me? You think the people Humanoids are like, Mark, we heard Warner Brothers interesting, but hey, let me show you this check. What do you think? <laughs> they don't have that kind of money. If they want him, he'll, he will tell Humanoids to... Go to flipping heck. Go to flipping heck. Uh, <laughs> the bottom line is that he was a very polarizing figure. Uh, this story is obviously still developing. It was unexpected to be sure. Uh, hopefully we will know more about 
what's in store for DC in the weeks ahead? It hasn't gone full Krypton yet. <laughs> so, yeah, right. You know, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. there are some rumblings These, from the core, but we, we're right. keeping an eye on it. <laughs> the elders at DC are still swearing that it's not going to explode anytime <laughs> soon. I have to go now. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while searching for DiDio's hidden prophecies of his own demise in the pages of his 2011 New 52 OMAC miniseries, OMACTIVATED. So hit us up on the... I didn't make that up, by the way. That's the title. So hit us up on the TH10 forums. Big news section, or better yet, tune in to Cover to Cover Live. You do it every Saturday. We'll be broadcast on our Facebook page from 11 to noon, Central Standard Time. Good news, this cold ought to be gone by then. It's better than taking bets on how soon Marvel will be making Superman movies and you control the content, including the question of the week. This week's question was about comic speculation. As a child, what comic did you pick up thinking, now this one's going to be worth some money? But, uh, it wasn't. And maybe, uh, it was. We'd love to hear about them. The wins, the losses. What were your good and bad comic book investments? Your biggest swings and your biggest misses. Call us live at the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894, or click the Call Now button, or you can tune into Facebook Live and just chat along with us on our Facebook page. If you can't be there live, you can always leave us a message, or you can send us an MP3 to nerd at gmail.com. It's Spotlight Review time in the Ziggurat, and this week we stood naked under the spring solstice to see whose pale visage glowed the brightest. In order to see who goes first. Matt, you're going to start attracting moloid callers if we don't get you some color soon. Why don't you go ahead? I know. I was even in Puerto Rico for a while. Nothing. SPF 90, baby. I don't screw around. My review this week goes to last week's Wolverine number one from Marvel because it needs to be talked about, goddammit. It was written by Ben Percy with art by Joe Colbert, 72 pages for $7.99. Here's your solicit. The best Wolverine is back. Wolverine has been through a lot. He's been a loner. He's been a killer. He's been a hero. He's been an Avenger. He's been hell and back. Now the nation of Krakoa brings together all mutant kind. He can finally be dot 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 happy. With his family all together and safe, Wolverine is everything he ever wanted and everything to lose. Yada, 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 yada. All right, there we go. Let's get into it. Ben Percy is a novelist and relative newcomer to comics. Wolvie fans might know him best from writing the Wolverine Long Night podcast and its sequel. If you didn't listen to those, you should because they were fantastic. Percy came aboard Hickman's Dawn of X line with X-Force number one and has been doing a really nice job on the title, which sees Wolvie leading a de facto ex-CIA, if you will. We all know and love Andy Kubert. The legendary artist started his Marvel career with Wolvie way back in 1993 and has returned to the old knucklehead now and again. He's probably the artist that pops into my head when I picture Wolverine. If you say Wolverine, I picture comic book pick. Honestly, first thing I picture is dog Wolverine that he drew for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that. The story opens with a familiar scene. A confused, wounded Wolvie wakes up surrounded by dead friends, convinced he's to blame. But then quickly, we jump back in time to see a happier Wolverine playing hide-and-go-seek with the young mutants on Krakoa. It actually gives Kubert a version of the character that we've never really seen him draw. Plain old happy Wolvie, and I really liked it. (laughs) From there, Kitty shows up with a shipment of Logan's favorite crappy Canadian whiskey. I kind of picture him as a Canadian club fan. You've never had it. It's crappy Canadian whiskey, all right? From there, Kitty sets up a mystery wrapped in a drug deal. It seems some Krakoan flower petals used to make the beneficial drugs that are going out to humanity are missing. Wolvie agrees to sniff around, and at the same time, we meet a CIA agent that looks like a mix of young Mick Foley and Gary Busey with an gnarly facial scar, but dresses like Johnny Utah from Point Break. Agent Bannister. Bannister is on the same case, but hasn't seemed to figure that out just yet, and has a sick little human girl of his own that sure could benefit from some muty medicine, if you know what I mean. Percy is just great when he's introducing quirky characters, and Bannister is a perfect way to show readers the human side of the investigation, which, of course, starts with the mutants, whereas Wolvie's investigation starts with the humans. 
Kubert isn't reinventing his style by any means, but he is working at his level, Wolverine best, with panels that even make CSI crime scene work look interesting. There's a wonderful two-page with Wolvie investigating and putting together his team that is just vintage Kubert. He's able to bounce back to Bannister's less colorful human world of offices and hospitals seamlessly with colors from Frank Martin. The first story sets up a compelling mystery with a familiar intro for old Wolvie fans, just enough violent action, and a great new human character that I honestly hope sticks around. Percy writes a second story, too, where we see old-school Wolvie baddie Omega Red showing up asking for some Krakoan clemency after what appears to be a solid ass-whooping. Wolvie, of course, isn't into it, but he's sent to see how this happens to someone like Red, and the mystery deepens. Victor Bogdanovich is on art duties. He gives a very 90s-inspired, mean, slash-em-up adventure in true snickety style. Even as a backup, the story was allowed to breathe a bit, and it looks to set up some future fun. In conclusion here, Marvel could have handed Wolverine fans a $7.99 price tag for an issue with the first story alone, followed by pinups and a throwaway backup. But instead, they seem to be letting Percy set up shop and develop a new direction for the character, along with some fun stuff on the horizon. I like that it's playing directly off his X-Force, but it's not X-Force essential. Percy is smart enough to write this as a Wolverine-driven book for people that just want to read Wolverine. Of course, there are some hooks there to try and get you into the other X stuff, but he did a great job with it. I'm giving this a buy it. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I I was super impressed by uh, Bogdanovich's art. I've seen him on a few projects here and there. I can't remember the last thing I saw his name on, but I really liked his work here. Yeah, I thought this was fun. It, it was great to see Wolverine uh, back in his own title. You know, it, uh, I like the the dichotomy of the uh, of Wolverine learning to be happy, uh, right? Which right. is totally at odds with Wolverine as he needs to be, but also at the same time just being Wolverine. It's not a new take. It's not a new direction. It's like, this is a book that reminded me of the old school Wolverine series. This is what I show up for to read Wolverine being Wolverine. And I actually, I really liked the conversation he had with Kitty about it. It was Uh, great. uh, Yeah. This was very enjoyable. It was packed full of content. Uh, 72 pages. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's and and eight bucks. That's two comics. So and it's two full stories. No bullshit. No filler. No reprints. Just a big thick Wolvie book. Yeah, it's a big thumbs up for me. I'm giving it a buy it. Wolverine. Joe Patrick, let's violently change directions, shall we? Yes, sir. <laughs> I am reviewing Amethyst number one from DC Comics, written and drawn by Amy Reader, with 32 pages for 3.99. Here's your solicit. Amy Winston, a.k.a. Princess Amethyst, returns to her magical kingdom to celebrate her 16th birthday in style. The only problem? Her kingdom is missing. Her subjects have vanished, and none in the realm of Gemworld, even her best friend, Lady Turquoise, remained loyal to her house. Bitch. I know. Goddamn, she threw some serious shade. Alone and dejected, Amy's forced to find new allies and confront dark secrets on an all-new quest to the farthest reaches of Gemworld. Uh, as I said, Amethyst is back in her own solo series. This follows her recent reintroduction in the pages of Young Justice. Series creator Amy Reader does an excellent job filling in the character's decades-old backstory while still propelling the plot forward. The script places this new chapter in Amy's life right alongside the uh, classic stories from the 80s told by Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn and Ernie Colon. I don't know how to type an accent. Uh, Related to Willie Colon. A famous Puerto Rican jazz (laughs) musician. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) The story has a lot of fun personal moments. Like in the opening scene, uh, she's on Earth with her adopted parents and they're celebrating her birthday and they're desperately trying to relate to her otherworldly life uh, and giving her books on like crystal healing and stuff. (laughs) And she's just like, oh, yeah, thank you. Great. Yeah. Uh, What I liked the most, though, about Reader's portrayal of Amy is that she actually talks and acts like a kid. Yeah, most definitely. She's got more responsibility than someone her age maybe should have, but she's temperamental, impetuous, entitled, and headstrong. In other words, she's a teenager. 
Yeah, but not an annoying teenager. Not by any means. They never over-teenagered this. And also not in a how-do-you-do-fellow-kids kind of way. (laughs) Reader's art is beautiful, despite the occasional oddly contorted face here and there. Uh, She depicts Gemworld as an Adventure Time-esque fantasy landscape with impossible geography and differently themed kingdoms with their own distinct look. There was a page or two where the progression of panels was difficult to follow, uh, but I think that could have been intended by Reader to mirror Amy's own disorientation when she comes through the portal for the first time. I do think that's what they were, what she was going for, and I think it worked pretty well. Yeah, it just took me a like, couple. I picked of, up on that. I picked up on that instantly. It, I was like, "Oh, that's neat. That's that's a cool effect." It took me a couple of looks to just figure out where my eye was supposed to go. Is all sure. Uh, sure. And, but for everything that that I thought was a little hinky, there was suddenly a Pegasus out of nowhere and a giant caterpillar with an angry face painted on its abdomen, and a villain so comically evil that he pins his cape on with a giant button that has a sneering evil grin on it. (laughs) It's like an evil smiley button. But again, this is all right out of the old pages of Amazon. Yeah, for sure. It's visually, it's bonkers. No weirder than Tawny the Tiger. Talky Tawny, yes. Yeah. Uh, It's visually bonkers. It's a real treat to look at. Now, I don't really have any investment in the character of Amethyst, uh, personally. I never really read the comics as a kid. But Amy Reader has succeeded in crafting a compelling young adult fantasy story, and I think it's got a lot of potential. Uh, Amethyst number one was a fun read. I think it's a welcome addition to the Wonder Comics, uh, not an imprint. I'm giving it a buy it. I might not be the core audience, but like for what it is, I think they did a great job. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously we're not the core audience here, but what Brian Michael Bendis is doing with Wonder Comics is finding creators like Amy Reader who can write this kind of kid stuff but do it so well that it appeals to everybody. Yeah. You don't have to be a kid to read it. Like, I had no interest in this, of course. I really enjoy Young Justice. I really enjoy this character from the book, and I really enjoy Amy Reader's take on it. I think it's awesome that we're writing intelligent kids' books because people forget without kids reading comics, no one's going to be reading them in the next 20 years. Yeah. So... If this gets a little girl or a little boy excited to read comics, kick ass. That's a good thing. I'm glad they're being handed good stuff. And this is not a slam on the old Amethyst, but rather than handing them the old, you know, Amethyst sure. Princess of Gem World. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This also gets a buy it from me. Yeah, and the most important thing is that Amy Reader never talks down to the audience. No. And I, that's I, the way you got to do it. I think it's what creators like Bendis and Reader do exceptionally well in their all-ages books is they don't write them like little kids' books. They don't. They're written for kids, sure. They're written at a level that a kid can understand and have fun with, but they're written so smart and and just like whip smart, you know, that anybody who reads it can go, oh, this is actually really good. Yeah, well done. So that is a double buy it for both Wolverine number one and Amethyst number one. We'll post our reviews over at twoheadednerd.com so THN conspiracy theorists can forever wonder the secret connection between Weapon X and the Princess of Gemworld. It's a secret. But we need to know what you nerds thought of these comics too, so call us this weekend on THN cover to cover at its new regular time, 11 a.m. to noon Central Standard Time. You know what nobody ever does? I think it's technically it's regular new time. It's regular new time. You know what nobody ever does? Calls us to tell us about the comics that they liked this week. Yeah, I know. Why don't you call us and tell us what you like to read? Seriously, you guys. I want to know what you're enjoying. I guess JD JD got a JD got a catch, does it? We get a few people calling me like, I read this, I really liked it. Yeah. I need more of it. Give me more. Joey, it's time to review some more of this in last week's comics. But before we do. Let's wet our whistles with a cocktail from the official THN bartender, Mr. Justin Fletcher, who put together something called Max's Feathers for the cocktail of the week. Max, by the way, is the name of the unicorn that Princess Amethyst writes. It's not Max, and it's not a unicorn. The old one was. Oh, all right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, unless the Princess Amethyst wiki is lying to me, but anyway... Justin, what exactly are we sipping on this week? All right, gentlemen, we are having a Amaro-based 
uh, ginger cocktail. It's kind of based on a horse feather, which is usually um, like whiskey and ginger beer with bitters. This is going to be uh, Angostura Amaro, ginger beer, um, ginger liqueur, and a little bit of lemon, and some really awesome Q ginger beer. Um, with, and instead of bitters, we're using cinnamon tincture. Um, ounce and a half of Angostura, quarter ounce of ginger liqueur, quarter ounce of simple syrup, quarter ounce of lemon, two ounces of ginger beer, four dashes of house-made cinnamon tincture, pour it over ice, express lemon, Dunzo's. Thank you very much for that, Justin. And Excelsior, as usual, the THN Cocktail of the Week is brought to you by O'Courant on the Benson Strip in Omaha, Nebraska, where Justin manages their bar program and Chef Ben was just nominated potential James Beard Award winner for 2020. Congrats to you, Chef Ben. Now, with drinking hand, join us as we review eight more of this and last Wednesday's new comic stirring. The Ludicrous Speed Round. Ludicrous Speed! Go! Plunge! Number one from DC Black Label Hill House. Joe Hill brings the legendary Stuart Eminem out of semi-retirement for this latest offering from Hill House. Serious John Carpenter's The Thing vibes in this tale of a corporation recruiting a group of scientists and deep-sea salvagers to investigate the sudden reappearance of a ship that's been missing for decades. Very cool. Very cool. We don't get too far into the meat of the story quite yet, but the cast is likable, and Eminem's stunning art has been sorely missed on the comic stands. Plunge number one gets a buy it. On the stump, number one from Image. Eisner nominated Bitterroot writer Chuck Brown doesn't write feel-good stories. And while a story about the American government where hulking politicians beat each other in actual brutal bare-fisted fights <laughs> to pass bills, sounds like it could be a wacky take on what if the WWE ran the country, Brown takes this tale of American political violence very seriously. Italian artist Prenzi puts the violence right in the reader's face as eyes pop from crushed skulls and knives are literally pushed into the backs of political opponents. Honestly, we might not be far from Brown's vision, but he and Prenzi do a great job packing each page with violent political discourse and show how that same Washington infighting has infected everyday American life. On the Stump could come off as a wrestling fan's take on how America should work, but Brown is talented enough to make it seem poignant to our current politics, and Prenzi's animated style brings the whoop-ass home. I'm giving this a buy it. Marvel Voices, number one from Marvel. This anthology series shines a spotlight on a host of characters and creators of color and other groups that are typically underrepresented in, in the industry. It's kind of a mixed bag, as all comic anthologies are, but there's a lot to like in this issue. All new work from the likes of Brian Stelfries and Kyle Baker is impossible to pass up. However, I must point out that the story by Broadway star James Monroe Iglehart and artist Ray Anthony Height featuring the spider that bit Peter Parker and Cindy Moon, Silk, gaining human intelligence, giant size, and becoming a crime fighter while well told is the stupidest idea I have ever read in a comic book. <laughs> Sounds dumb. <laughs> Despite that, I really enjoyed Marvel's Voices number one, and I'm giving it a buy it. Apparently, it's also a podcast of the same name and focus, and you can read the comic along with the show. That's odd. All right. Interesting. Fantastic Four Grim Noir one shot from Marvel. Marvel has no lack of wacky one-shot ideas, and this one, where the Thing puts on a fedora and a trench coat, not to hide from society for a change, but to investigate a dame's disappearance, actually works really well. Writer Jerry Duggan doesn't spend too much time hammering home the pulp detective stuff or trying to make Ben sound like Mike Hammer. Instead, he writes a good mystery with a supervillain causing problems on Yancey Street that we don't normally see tangling with the Thing. Ron Garney's art is pretty amazing, leaning into some heavy black work and some crazy psychedelic panels as the thing is pulled to an even deeper and darker mystery than he bargained for. Look, I'm not saying that this is a book I need to read monthly, but I'd read a mini by this team with Ben as a private dick for those who need a real hard-nosed detective. I'm giving it a buy it. It's not a bad idea for a thing comic, honestly. Weird. Leviathan Dawn, one shot from DC. 
This issue picks up directly after the events of Event Leviathan, with the villain revealed and the heroes coming together to form a plan to stop him. A mysterious new character named Kingsley Jacobs joins Steve Trevor in creating a new version of Checkmate, while the ranks of Leviathan plan their next event. Seriously, they kept calling it an event. They kept referring it to an event, referring to it as an event Leviathan. They Stop did it. the whole time in the last series too. It doesn't make sense. This easily could have just been another issue of the longer series, and Alex Maleev seems to phone in his art a bit in places. But the Leviathan saga as a whole remains compelling. I'm totally invested in it. This sets up a lot of fun stuff. I'm excited for the next uh, the next chapter, which will be more focused on Checkmate. I'm giving it a buy it. Tomorrow, number one from Dark Horse slash Burger Books. Peter Milligan has more street cred than just about any creator I can think of from that DC Vertigo salad days. And he's bringing the old magic back in this terrifying story of a computer virus that makes the jump to humanity. Jesus Hervez is a name you are going to be hearing more of because the art here is just amazing. His backgrounds are hard, almost photo reference, but stylized, not unlike Alex Mayleaves' work. But the characters just pop off the page with humanity. Or in the case of the main character here, his inability to process emotion properly. This book was a stunning first issue that sets up a world in flames as the survivors are left to figure out what comes next. I'm giving it a buy it. It wasn't feel good by any means, but it was a great issue. Giant size X-Men, Jean Grey and Emma Frost, one shot from Marvel. I was expecting to enjoy this issue from Dawn of X mastermind, Jonathan Hickman and artist Russell Dodderman, but I was not prepared for how jaw-droppingly stunning this issue would be. Hickman's words take a back seat and let Dodderman's art tell the tale of Jean and Emma trying to rescue Storm from a psychic machine virus. Yeah, oh, damn. it's weird. Proving that Dodderman is a master storyteller in his own right, Giant Size X-Men was thrilling and beautiful, and I'm giving it a huge buy it. Conspiracy Area 51, number one from Xenoscope. You want me to read your comic? Give it a title like this and you've got my attention. The story starts very similarly to the recent Storm the Gates of Area 51 online inspired event that went nowhere. The creators use the event to sneak in some lady butts, giving the average Xenoscope fan the fan service they deserve, I suppose. But from there, things get weird as a group of friends fake their way onto the base into what seems to be a trap. The story deviates from the high alien conspiracy stuff that I love into something more earthly, but I suppose the alien stuff could be coming later. I don't think the characters actually said their names outside of a brief intro of their fake IDs, so they're a little hard to care for at all. The conspiracy they do find isn't very well drawn nor interesting enough to bring me back for more. It's a nice step out of the typical sexy grim fairy tale stuff Xenoscope is famous for, but the title was called Conspiracy Area 51, and we get a survival story of three unlikable teens in issue number one instead. Maybe there just weren't enough girl butts here for me, but I'm giving it a leave it. Oh man, you ruined our perfect record. We had given everything a buy it up until now. It's, sorry about that. Don't blame me, blame Xenoscope. <laughs> speed round and fa boom is the sound obviously of a baby star brand being born as seen in the pages of avengers number 30 this onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by at form of water on twitter if you want to submit your own onomatopoeia of the week you can post it to any of our social media accounts or send me an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com and remember stop by okarant and try the teach and cocktail of the week why don't you it's delicious. Sipping on it right now. It's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we're making our first must-read picks of spring with a little help from the teachings of Dr. Druid. That's right, Joe. Just a little infant blood and some burnt rabbit's paw. Joe, uh, this smells pretty bad, but I bet it gets way better when we eat it. Now rub some of this mixture on your gums and tell the kids about your picks for next week. That's vile. Next week, I am excited to read Strange Adventures number one from DC Comics written by Tom King with art by Mitch Gerrids. It's uh, an amount of pages for $4.99. They did not specify. Here's your solicit. 
Oh, and boy, are they tooting their own horn. After winning five Eisner Awards and topping year-end best-of lists, the comic book of 2019 was Mr. Miracle. The comic book of 2020 will be Strange Adventures. The Mr. Miracle team of writer Tom King and artist Mitch Garretts are joined by fan-favorite artist Evan Doc Shaner. That's right, I love him. I to do too. bring you an epic tale in the tradition of Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returns, and DC The New Frontier, a story of blood, war, and love that readers will be talking about for years to come. Adam Strange is the hero of Ran, a man famous throughout the galaxy for his bravery and honor. After leading his adopted home to victory in a great planetary war, Adam and his wife Alana retire to Earth, where they are greeted by cheers, awards, and parades. But not all is as happy and nice as it seems, as the decisions Adam made during battles on Ran come back to haunt his family and threaten the entire DC Universe. And now, a surprise DC hero will have to choose between saving Adam and saving the world. A story like no other, Strange Adventures is an ambitious, thrilling, shocking, and beautiful 12-issue saga that will push Adam Strange to the breaking point and beyond. I was okay with it being ambitious, but now that I found out that it's thrilling and shocking, I guess I'm in. Yeah. Uh, They have really sipped on their own (laughs) Kool-Aid with with this solicit. Hey, man, Uh, come on. This is what you got to do. This is how you make money. You ever read a New York Times bestselling author solicits for their books? Yeah, I get it. They are their own biggest fans here. Uh, But I do love Adam Strange. Uh, I was interested to see what Tom King and Mitch Garrett's follow-up to Mr. Miracle was going to be. But for me... I am super excited for Doc Shaner to have a yeah. huge project under his belt. And, and we talked a bunch of shit about Tom King's work on Batman, and maybe it's because a guy like Tom King doesn't belong on Batman. But you know what? Adam Strange, perfect place for that weirdness. Well, and Go also, nuts. yeah, and also a, Go nuts. S- a self-contained story with a beginning, middle, and end. This is where he thrives. You, this is where you get your your visions and your Mr. Miracles and your Omega totally. Men's. Matt Bomb. My pick next week goes to Strange Academy, number one from Marvel. It's written by Scotty Young with art by Humberto Ramos. It is 40 pages for $4.99, and here is your solicit. A sorcerer school for the Marvel Universe. The Marvel Universe has mysteriously changed in such an alarming way that Doctor Strange has done what he's avoided for decades. He's opened a school for young sorcerers. Young people from around the world with an aptitude in magic have been brought together in New Orleans to study the mystic arts under Strange, Brother Voodoo, the Ancient One, the Scarlet Witch, Magic, Hellstrom, which seems like a bad idea, and all your favorite Marvel magicians, but with all new magical threats. Is it too late? Question mark, exclamation point. You just uh, had to go out and pick your own Strange book to copy me, didn't you? Oh, I didn't even realize that. No. Okay, no. I didn't realize that because it's not a title, so it's not like an obvious pun. Get out of here. I I read the preview for this recently. I can't even remember what it was. It was the backup of one of the Marvel books I was catching up on on the plane. And it was delightful. Yeah. Absolutely delightful. Yeah, it's super cute. Humberto Ramos' art looks better than it has in years. Scotty Young's story is adorable. There's a giant, like, female ice... (laughs) Ice yeah, giant you've got there like Asgardian kids, super and, lovable, yeah. and like, oh man, there's like, there's a, there's like little a little Dormammu kid, yeah, like his name's like, is there Bud Dormammu or something stupid? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. That. And they keep calling like his dad the dork, <laughs> the dreaded dork Mamu, and he's like, <laughs> you stop it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm not always sold on Scotty Young as a writer, but this seems right up his alley, and the preview was very charming. Oh, it was delightful. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Second Coming, Volume 1, Trade Paperback from Ahoy Comics. It's written by Mark Russell, with art by Richard Pace and Leonard Kirk. It's 168 pages for $19.99, and here is your solicit. The book everyone's talking about by award-winning writer Mark Russell, Wonder Twins, The Flintstones, and artist Richard Pace, Pitt, and New Warriors. I can't believe those are the only two credits they got for him. Well... Dude's got to work someplace. I mean, come on. Uh, No mention of Leonard Kirk. Now in one volume, God commands Earth's mightiest superhero, Sunstar, to accept Jesus as his roommate and teach him how to use his power more forcefully. Jesus, shocked at the way humans have twisted his message over two millennia, vows to straighten them out. This collects the entire first volume, uh, Second Coming 1 through 6. It is a delight. It is a great read. Mark Russell... 
smartest working writer in comics right now. Yeah, we loved this book. Absolutely loved it. This was the one that Image passed on, right? Uh, this was the one that was going to come out from Vertigo. Oh, that's right. And then, DC Vertigo passed on. And then Batman showed his dick, and everybody at Time Warner got went crazy. <laughs> right. Black uh, Label became Gray Label. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Vertigo's loss is a Hoy's gain. It It's a great series, great art, tons of fun. These are just a few of the comics hitting the new shelves at your LCS next Wednesday, March 4. So be sure to add them to your pull files and let us know what you are reading over at the THN forums. With pics of Robert Pattinson's bat suit hitting the net, nerd reaction was swift. Knees jerked, fingers pointed at video game designs and ninja Batman elseworlds. Nerds have been asking for our Project Runway Bat-style review, so it only seemed appropriate for us to play a Bat Fashion Forward edition of Ask a Nerd, where we explore the question, what makes a good bat suit? Matt, let's start with our feelings on the latest images of the bat suit, which we should point out are uh, being worn by a stunt person, not of Robert Pattinson. Uh, of course. So I think one thing that can, one point that can be made right off the bat is that stunt costumes are obviously uh, overly padded. And more to the point, even if it was Robert Pattinson, you would not see this as the finished suit. It would be the suit that he's wearing on camera right. while doing stuff. There's going to be all man manner of digital finishing. But even more to the point, I think we need to remember that this movie takes place for, during the first two years of Robert Pattinson's career as Batman. So nothing we might even see in this film is the finished bat suit as we think of it. Yeah, of you course. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. It's a it's an on-set photo. Uh I had a similar though I though I actually was really impressed with the design of it. Uh I had a similar reaction when uh set photos from Falcon and Winter Soldier came out. Yes. With uh Wyatt Russell dressed as the US agent. I, I thought, you know what? In real life, it does look kind of goofy. But when they put that through the Hollywood machine, it's going to look, look great. slick as hell. Uh, now, I will say the cowl here, I think looks really good. I think it looks really good. I like the height of the ears. I think it looks functional. I don't. I, I like there's no like vents on it like they've done in the past. It looks like a, like he's wearing a helmet, but it's also protective. And it's still the Batman cowl. So the the camera test that we talked about in our last episode that was actually Pattinson in the costume. Uh, that looked more like leathery. Yeah. The, the cowl did. So I'm wondering if the helmet is just a stunt thing or if it Probably was, or if it was because he was, yeah, he was riding the bat cycle. Well, let me tell you something else though. I fucking loved that. The motorcycle had the bat, <laughs> the, the bat grill on it. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, there were also these, and the one thing that everybody really freaked out about were like the arm gauntlets that have these darts on them. Yes. Now, again, we don't know what the darts are. I will say they looked a little sharp to not murder somebody. Somebody, but... <laughs> uh, somebody from the production staff posted a close-up of that gauntlet on Instagram, and yeah, they are definitely darts uh, of some kind. Maybe it's part of like his grappling hook. Thing. Or if you want to say it's like a throwing dart that he like tosses at somebody and hits them like and it hurts really bad, I'll buy that. I mean, but you if know he's that shooting those at someone, you know that gonna, that thing shoots darts. <laughs> they're gonna punch right through you. And you murder know you. that that thing <laughs> so. shoots those darts like Destro's wrist rockets. Uh, I think all in all, it, it, we don't need to worry about what we're gonna get for a bat suit yet because we haven't seen enough. And rea overreacting to this shit is just overreacting to overreact. I That's to, all it is. I need to see footage. I need to see footage of the suit in action. Yes. Uh, yes. And we'll get there. Yeah. Set photos. Set photos are always deceiving. Set, because, yeah, set photos can be deceiving, and also the fact that it's a stunt guy wearing what is probably a padded version of the suit means that it will look even more different. When when we see Pattinson in action in it, um, so let's talk about bat suits that worked for us and why. Joe Patrick, what do you think was the best live action bat suit? I'm going to tell you what. I kind of hate most of them. <laughs> I, I, I do too. I looked through, you know, looking through. I, I just kind of went through in my head and was like, you know, I kind of liked it here and I kind of liked it there. And then I did some research and looked at them all lined up and was like, wow. 
yeah. a lot of these are terrible. Like, Just terrible. No, like I I get it. It's Hollywood. They're they're trying to make something ridiculous look realistic on screen. Sure. But maybe that's not a direction I need them to go in. You know what I mean? Like sure. I I despite the fact that he moved like a Frankenstein and couldn't pivot his head, like I loved the way Michael Keaton looked in the original 89 Batman. Yeah. And they went straight up black and yellow Batman. Right. No question. And you know, that suit evolved like as when Joel Schumacher got involved, holy shit. Uh, it just became like a series of action figure, uh, variants with like the Mr. Freeze, the Mr. Freeze, freeze proof suit and the bat nipples and the blue and the silver. Yeah, the the Amazon bat jungle skimmer suit <laughs> yeah, or right, whatever. Exactly. You know, like. uh, but uh, yeah, like the Batman Begins, the bat, uh, the Christopher Nolan suits never impressed me really. They, I thought that they were just as clunky and and um, uh, restrictive looking as the Tim Burton one. So, what was your favorite? So, I I think I lean towards I, I the more comic booky it looks, the more I like it. Uh, and so, and you're going to tell me I'm cheating, but my favorite live action version of the Batman suit was in the 2003 short film, Batman Dead End, uh, which is the one where Batman is going after the Joker and then the alien and the predator show up. You remember that? Sure. But that wasn't a movie. That was some fan casting. But if you liked it, you liked it. It was, it was made by Hollywood people. Like, yes, yeah. they were fans. It was like a legit piece of costuming. That bat suit was really cool. I'll and, give you that. Like, it looked like an Alex Ross painting come to life. Yeah, it did. It looked like the Alex Ross sort of, like, glossy painted black suit. It was it was you know? gray and black. Like, it was very yeah. comic book, like, Dark Knight Returns looking comic book appropriate. And I think with some tweaks, there's no reason why that couldn't be a Hollywood bat suit. Like, but they tried that. That like, that was the Ben Affleck suit. Right, they and went for that just, gray and black thing. And it's and just it that the design did not was work. the design was bad. It was terrible. You had the first of all, you had the fat bat on his chest, yeah. the gigantic well, like and, fat bat, and like and everything, then, like, and like like everything in the Zack Snyder movies, it had way too many weird lines all over it for no yeah, reason. It was like washed out Kevlar like, oddly, gray, oddly textured for some reason. Well, they, they were going for just, like that Frank Miller look, is what they were going for. They, it was, they, they wanted that Frank Miller Batman versus Superman. Dark Knight Returns look. It was it too just, muted. Yeah, if they had gone, if they had taken that same like silhouette of the of the suit and said and given it like clear, distinctive gray and black, that would have been fine. Like a comic book, it would have been fine. It would have been perfect. But like, perfect. it almost looked like he was wearing like a real herky like sailing sweater or something, <laughs> you know, with shoulder pads. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. just no, it, he doesn't need that. See now. I, I'm going to disagree with you because I think my favorite bat suit is the Batman Begins from 2005 suit, and it was the more stripped down one. When they got to bat, when the Dark Knight Rises, he was ver- wearing a very modernized Kevlar thing with like armor on it and stuff like that. I thought in Batman Begins, the, there's, the suit there's, was there's actually a, a they make a point in the Dark Knight. He's actually wearing a less armored version because he wanted greater mobility. Right. So they put like plates on it yeah where right they needed to be and whatnot yeah. the batman begins one was designed by christopher nolan and a costume designer named lindy hemming and they sort of designed it based on the script we saw bruce in training with a ninja group you know the league of assassins and he sort of developed his armor based loosely off what they were wearing and it looks like yeah you can, can see the inspiration it, it, it reminds Definitely. me it, it reminds me of some stories where you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you can see how Daredevil pieced his costume together based on, like, yes. the ninja clan he trained with and whatever. Right. Uh, and I like that. And I like that was, element of it. It looks like he can fight in it was the other thing that I really liked about it. But there was also still plenty of cape. He was doing a lot of cape work, which you have to have for Batman. It very much reminded me of the look of, like, the Batman Incorporated bat suit that was designed by David Finch, which, again, that black and gray thing. Now, this was a little more all black 
It was still very similar in how stripped down it was. Black on dark gray makes a little more sense in reality, and I give I get that. I like the Kevlar look, but not again the super plated, you know, armored look to it. And I just liked how Christian Bale looked in the suit and fought in it as well. See, Whereas I will, they did a lot of stuff with Ben Affleck off camera effects-wise to make him scary and moving really fast yeah, and stuff like that. I uh, See, I'm going to disagree with you about that. I think that every modern Batman costume, with the exception of Ben Affleck, has looked like a guy moving slowly through water. Like, it's so stiff-looking to me. I don't so think they did that Batman Begins at all. I, 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 I think, think they really nailed the quick ninja stuff. I think that they tried so hard to distance themselves from the campiness of Batman and of those earlier movies that they made it. I get, I get it. It's Christopher Nolan. I get it, but it's Batman. It's Batman. I mean, I disagree, man. I thought like he showed up and would take his opponents apart very quickly. And he was in a sense where he waits for you to make a mistake and then boom attacks and, you know, finds your weak spot and takes you down. And that's what he was trained by the league of assassins as well. Like like you said, let them strike you. Like you said, though, like Ben Affleck, it looked like Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck moved like a comic book character because most of his action scenes were CGI. Right. It was all effects and yeah. whatnot. And, and, and there's no way he could have been doing what he did with his body size and that suit he was supposed to be wearing. Right. I felt like the Nolan ones captured all of that for me, the, the, specifically the 2005 one captured all of that for me and I, did that. I'm not saying I need to see the same thing again in the Robert Pattinson one, but they need to be careful. Like the same way that Marvel chose not to put Captain America in spandex, but put him in a red, white, and blue military outfit. And it really, really worked. Right. It really worked. We don't lose the character, but we also believe that that character can jump around, flip, throw his shield and kick that guy in the mouth. Right. You know, and, I'll buy that. And when, and by the time we get to the present day in that movie, uh, well, we don't actually see it in the first movie. Um, but by the time that character gets to the present day and he gets like a modern tactical version, like it looks great. Yeah. It looks great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, what's most important is holding on to that comic book iconic aspect of the suit the character in the suit, but not trying to over-actualize it into something ridiculous while still maintaining the best parts of the icon. And and to me, I think that Marvel has done a great job delivering Hollywood-style believable versions of these costumes that still capture the feel of the character. And I think, I don't think DC has done a good job of that except for wonder woman who and Shazam. I would say they went the exact opposite with Shazam. And actually for that matter, Aquaman, like that dude totally works. That dude steps out of the waterfall wearing that fucking gold shirt and green pants. I'm like, yeah, that's Aquaman. I will say he looked great. Didn't act like him or sound like him, but in that but moment, yeah, the visual, he looked visually. really good. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I think like with, I, I think that they, I think that they try to tone down the comic bookiness of it too much. Well, there seems to be something to both Superman and Batman that are the hardest to get right with this. And they seem like on paper, it should be the easiest. It should yeah. just be the easiest two to knock out of the park. And for some reason, Marvel was ever, was able to do a better Spider-Man. Spider-Man, which is a suit that Stan Lee t- tried to tell Steve Ditko, dumb it down, man. You're not going to want to draw this forever. you got to be kidding me. You know, like people told him, you guys can't do this. You can't do that. That costume is terrible. And we've come to love Spider-Man. It looks great. And Marvel did a great job. Just putting a CG character in that costume, and it looks wonderful. For some reason, Batman and Superman seem to be the most difficult. Even Next time they do a Green Lantern one, it's going to be easy. Just don't put him, don't give him toes, and we'll be fine. You know? <laughs> oh, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. Now, we'd love to hear about your favorite bat suit and why you love it, so hit us up this weekend on THN Cover to Cover for more bat suit discussion. 
But leave that bat nipple shit at home where it belongs, okay? Because it's, that's it's disgusting. A, it's a family show. If you've got a question you'd like to submit for Ask a Nerd, be sure to include your name and shoot us an email or post it right on our Facebook or the forums. Yeah, wherever you like. We got an Ask a Nerd section. Perfect for crap like this. Yep. Excelsior! Oh. Kids, that's it for THN 562. And next week, allergy season should be in full swing. So look forward to a snottier mess than usual. Joe, before the pollen count starts rising, why don't you ask these nerds a new question of the week? This week's question was submitted by Frank C. Monkey Cirillo via the THN forums. Hey, first time posting, so I hope I got the right place. You did, Frank. Good job. Here's my question. Okay, great. Let's hear it. What comic did you hope... Nope. You really lived through that. That's I, I did. <laughs> what comic did you buy that you thought was going to be worth a lot of money one day but wasn't? And of course, do you have any that actually turned out to be a good investment? Talk to us about your best and worst comic book investment picks. Your speculator hits and misses. Let's hear about it. If you're new to this show and you'd rather build your own bat suit to come wreak vengeance on us rather than listen to any more, I assure you, you can save your money because you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So, we like to thank donors who spent a little bit of their money, like our old pal, Ed Schnazzy. Where did that guy come from? Are you kidding me? Nah. Ed's still kicking around out there. Clint's dad? Really? He's out there (laughs) making his way Uh, in the world today. Eddie, I love you, man. Good to hear from you. Uh, Yeah, maybe uh, throw some of that bad suit money our way. You don't need it. Yeah, come on. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to occasional THN love slave, Tony Doug Wright, the man with two first names, whose new comic, Danger Devil, from SourcePoint Press, got featured in previews this month. SourcePoint. We actually like those guys. Yeah, yeah. The book comes out in May, so be sure to get your pre-order into your local retailer by the end of March. Word to you, TD Dubs. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics. Your retailer might just activate your dental plan. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. How would they? What? How, how would they have access to your dental plan? They would punch you in the mouth, breaking oh. your teeth. Oh, I see. Which would thereby activate your dental plan. Oh, oh, activate. Got it. Got Come it. on. I mean, what do you think Omac did? He smashed you. 